The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I'm beginning in the middle of this talk. Please forgive me for forgetting to turn it on earlier. And we're talking about this art of retreating. And as I mentioned at the beginning, going from a superficial view of retreating as like running off to some secluded place and really understanding retreating more in terms of what we're doing with the mind. In a sense, we're retreating, we're letting go of what we normally do with our mind and we're replacing it with a reflective way of being. So normally I'm trying to do something with my mind. I'm trying to figure something out. Should I do this with this person or not? Should I become this in the future? Why did I do this in the past? How should I sit? Am I a good meditator? You know, basically the mind throws out a problem and then it tries to solve it. However, you know, that might be it for us in that moment. And we get lost in that problem solving and that doing, that personal doing. So we're replacing that, we're retreating from that activity, which pretty much fills up our lives. We're retreating from that into a more reflective present, where the mind is knowing. We're recognizing, oh, the mind is knowing this now. Now the mind is knowing this. And so whether you work with a focused anchor, like being aware of the breath coming in and out, or whether you're doing what we call a more open attention practice, where you're aware, you're letting the attention go to whatever's predominant in the moment, might be a sound, might be a thought, might be sensation, pain in the body or something. Both have, you know, various positive aspects each technique. There are many techniques along the range from a very focused attention on a particular phenomenon like breathing to a more open attention at this other end of the spectrum. But regardless of how you're practicing or what particular uh, technique, I, I should say, that you're using, you can cultivate this reflective presence where you're aware that the mind is knowing the in-breath. The in-breath is being known. The out-breath is being known. Or thinking is being known. Worrying is being known. Pain in the knee is being known. Hearing is being known. And then, as you get some momentum, to be interested in the attitude. Is this object being known with greed or aversion? In which case, oh, it's being known with greed and aversion, and it's like this. It's not even so much that we need to control the greed and aversion. We're just interested in not forgetting it. We're recollecting, oh, the mind is knowing with greed, and it's like this. The mind is knowing with greed, and it's like this. The mind is wanting, and it's like this. Or the mind is bored, and it's like this. The mind is bored, and it's like this. The mind is aversive, and it's like this. And you can even use some of the phrases in your mind from time to time. Maybe not, maybe not useful to do it obsessively, but from time to time to help clarify how you're practicing, sort of stabilize, to 
just ask the question, like, what is the mind knowing? Well, the mind is knowing the sound. Hearing is being known. It's like this. And then, you know, with some stability, then you can even be interested in, you know, is the mind knowing with greed? Is the mind knowing with aversion? So you can put it in the form of a question. And the alternative to knowing with what we call the defilements, like greed and aversion, distractedness, the mind can be knowing with right view, which means it's knowing with some clarity. And in that, it's knowing that it, whatever it is that it's knowing, it's just a natural process. It's not adding any sort of personal overlay. So whether it's knowing thought or knowing sensation or knowing the breath coming and going, the mind is knowing, <coughs> recognizing or understanding that what it's knowing is just a natural process, not self, not personal. So we can even have that with something seemingly personal like thinking. Thinking, from a conventional point of view, seems really personal. And these are my thoughts. But when, when there's some stability in the mindfulness, some continuity in the mindfulness, then we can notice that this thinking, whatever it might be, it might be skillful thinking or unskillful thinking, it doesn't matter. The mind will recognize that the thinking is a natural process. It's not self. We're not saying that we shouldn't think or that we should think. We're just recognizing it as a natural process, that that thinking is happening because of causes and conditions. It's such a relief not to have to take the experiences that are being known personally. And in a way, we're learning to settle back, rest back in, this, in the clarity of knowing that it's like this, which is in a way effortless, isn't it? Because the mind is already ready to know. There's no like switch we have to turn on so the mind is knowing. Or we don't need to like crank it up so the mind is knowing. Can you shut it off now? Can you stop knowing? You see, it really is just a natural background functioning of the mind to know. Why don't we just practice resting back and trusting that, that knowing? really learning to appreciate it. And then as we gain some momentum, some confidence in trusting that, we can really then begin to understand like right view, seeing things as a natural process, or wrong view, where greed or aversion or distractedness, confusion, is involved in the knowing, is a sort of affecting the knowing painting the knowing. And then if you don't like that aversion is painting your knowing, you need to know that aversion too. Right? Oh yeah. There's the I'm bored, you know. So I'm knowing the experience through the filter of boredom. And then I don't like the boredom. So then there's that knowing of the not liking the boredom. So it doesn't matter because knowing, like I said, it's it's just there. It's already ready to know whatever. If something is happening, then it's being known. So mindfulness, and so much of the practice is more about recollecting how it is than about Mark or anybody doing something. So much of what causes problem in meditation practice is making wrong efforts. 
we, because we're in the mode of doing a lot of self-centered efforting in our lives, then of course, this is what we bring to our meditation practice. You know, I really trust this practice, so I really want to do it right. But <clears throat> it's all coming from a particular view. Like, I'm a screwed up human being that wants to get my act together. Or, I'm a together human being that wants to be even more together. More to- together than the rest of you. Or, <laughs> you know, it's, it, uh, one sort of self-centered trip or another. You know, I want to be a really good person. So like even a really wholesome conception. So I really want to be a good person so I can really be there for my partner or be there for my kids or be there for the world. That's a pretty wholesome conception. But if we bring that in and then continue to use it, it may be a useful conception to get us to practice, but it can't be really part of the practice. Because in terms of practice, that's a thought being known that conception that I really want to develop mindfulness so I can be a better person. In terms of practice, that's just a thought being known. Right? Like when that thought is happening in the mind, it's possible to know that that thought is happening in the mind without needing to judge it or not. If we're judging it, then the knowing is tainted by aversion. Or we're really proud of having that conception that I just want to practice to become a better person then that's attachment affecting the knowing, greed affecting the knowing. Like we have some rosy vision of ourselves being really mindful and good for the world. And then that's tainting the knowing. But with mindfulness and wisdom, there just can be that simple knowing. And the Buddha goes on, so after that statement about how to be present, to let go of the past, to let go of the future, each presently arisen state, let one know that, be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Then he goes on to explain this. How practitioners does not, how does one revive the past, or how does one not revive the past? So he says, he goes on and he explains that when you have sort of a sense experience, or you think something, and you delight in it, then you're reviving it, and you're proliferating. But if you don't delight in it, that you see it as a natural process, it's just a natural process, then it's not a problem. So it, the, the Buddha's not saying don't have thoughts about the past. He's saying that when you do have thoughts about the past, because we will have thoughts about the past, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to have thoughts about the past. The key is, do we delight in those thoughts, do we proliferate, or do we just let that be a thought about the past. Thought about the past is being known. And we see it as a natural process. Well, of course the mind, from time to time, has thoughts about the past. It's neither good nor bad. It's just a net part of the natural process of body and mind to have thoughts about the past. Same with thoughts about the future. It's not about, oh, I shouldn't be having thoughts about the future. But when they arise, is the mind delighting to getting attached or all worked up about that thought about the future or not. And then even the present, the Buddha then goes on and talks about even the present moment. You know, the present moment in terms of seeing something or hearing something or smelling or tasting something or sensing something in terms of physical sensation. Then it's just a matter, 
like there's no way we can stop from having physical experience as long as we're sensitive we're going to be having physical experience but are we taking it personally in which case we're going to be for it or against it depending on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant we're going to have greed or aversion basically or we can see all of our sense experience in terms of being a natural process so that's why it's a nice form to sit still or if you do go on a, a meditation retreat you know a lot of your activities are restricted you're not playing basketball or listening to music or talking to your friends usually on retreats you know we have a pretty simple environment where we're sitting and we're walking and doing some simple jobs to take care of our you know the space of the, the retreat and so we use that simplicity but we're still going to be having sense experiences but it's just in the simplicity it's easier to recognize well that's just seeing seeing is being known well that's just moving the experience of moving is being known well that's just thinking the experience of thinking is being known and that's how the Buddha teaches us in this discourse how to not get caught it's really with right view it's the only way we can't muscle our way use our kind of force of will to keep from getting caught the only thing that keeps the mind from getting caught in the past and the future or in the present is right view and right view again just in terms of information right view is just remembering that whatever it is that's being known whatever it is that can be known it's just a natural process now don't take this as an absolute truth but reflect on that like so when you are in a moment of mindfulness with some momentum some continuity then just notice that whatever you're knowing just notice like you can you ask the question is this a natural process unfolding naturally according to causes conditions or is it me or mine or self you can just ask a question like that and don't even have just look then that will just help kind of clarify like bring interest in the moment so maybe right now even as you're listening there's something running in the background or maybe even the experience of listening to the talk itself you know we could be here listening to the talk <clears throat> and maybe there's enough reflective presence to know that listening to talk is being known that you're aware that you're listening to a talk right so that means you're mindful if you're just listening to a talk but you're not aware that you're listening to talk you're not being mindful even if it's a talk about mindfulness <laughs> but if you're aware that you're here that there is this listening and there's this talk being known then you're mindful and then the question is can you see that this being here being aware of hearing this talk that this whole experience that you're aware of now that it's a natural process unfolding it's unfolding doing due to causes and conditions the causes and conditions that got you here the causes and conditions that are causing your mind to be alert enough to be listening instead of to be lost in some thought about the past or the future we all know that you can be at talks and not at talks right completely oblivious to what's being said 
I don't, can't tell you how many times I've been in the middle of a Dharma talk realizing I have no idea what the person's talking about. I've just not been here, you know, and then having to start over again. Okay. This is how it is. You know, coming back, landing back in the present moment, it's like this. Hearing is like this. And we begin again. So, <clears throat> this is really what we mean by retreating. And so whether we need or uh, appreciate the value of going away to some quiet place and how that can support this reflection, or whether we don't have too many opportunities because we have kids so we don't get time off, or we don't have the resources to go away, it doesn't matter. What matters is are we interested enough to uncover this quality of the mind that knows? recognize it, appreciate it, develop this mind that knows, or develop actually the recognition that the, this is being known. Developing some momentum with that, so that we really not forgetting that this is being known. And then understanding the different kinds of views, wrong view, the, the sort of knowing tainted by greed and aversion, taking things personally and being, and then greed and aversion arising with that, or in the direction of right view, seeing the unfolding of experience as a natural process. And you can just even use it, like I mentioned before, use it as information. Just bring that information in. Is this self, is this me or mine, who I am, or is this just a natural process being known? really begin to <clears throat> notice uh, with this kind of work, this sort of practice, you really begin to notice all the different ways our mind is dependent on experience. And the path is really about revealing an independence, a way of being independent, being a human being, hearing, seeing, thinking, feeling, you know, all the things that human beings do that independent in that experiencing, as opposed to being dependent on our experience, trying to get something, trying to hold on to something, creating friction and suffering because of the dependency. There's a <clears throat> another time when the Buddha was saying evidently the same story, talking to this person. And the Buddha had this phrase, he put it into verse, all conquering, all knowing, intelligent, with regard to all things unadhering. I like that. With regard to all things unadhering. The mind not sticky with experience, because it sees it as a natural process. All abandoning, release, in the ending of craving, him I call, or her I call, a person who lives alone. Right? So the, the freedom, freedom, the independence, so we're not caught in the world. Like the Buddha often used the term worldliness, 
being a worldling, just an ordinary, unenlightened worldling. You know, being in the world as sort of a description of a <coughs> conventional, ordinary human being, like all of us. And then this independence, this freedom, this release, is when the mind is, has gone beyond the, the tendency to take experience personally and to get involved with it with greed and aversion. All-knowing, intelligent with regard to all things, unadhering, all-abandoning, released in the ending of craving. This is a person I call one who lives alone. So I'll leave it here. We have about uh, 20 minutes tonight. It'd be nice to continue the conversation. A number of you have been on any number of retreats. It'd be nice to hear your own experience about how retreats can be just a way of striving, a way of sort of building the ego, and how renunciation actually works, whether you're going away on a formal retreat or you're in the middle of busy life with kids or job, that you're understanding the mind that's not adhering to the experience. You're understanding that the mind can be the mind that knows it's like this, and knowing that this is a natural process, not something to be clung to as I, me, or mine. Or any questions you might have about the talk tonight? So what comes to mind? Yeah. She asked about relationship in particular and attachment and how that might look, you know, and isn't it appropriate to be attached in relationship to be in love? So remember, we might, we hear these teachings, so if you're relatively new to the practice and you're hearing this teaching on renunciation, and you know, just to give a little background, the Buddha didn't lead with this teaching. This is considered a deeper teaching, this teaching on renunciation. He would lead by teaching how being generous really leads to good results. Being kind really leads to good results. And really helping people set in motion good consequences in their life from the way they're acting in the world and thinking about things. How to set in motion good consequences so life works better for them. And then when life is working better for them, then he might start teaching a little bit about renunciation, that even when things are going well, you're still not in control. So here's how that might work, how instead of saying to ourselves, hey, the Buddha says I shouldn't be attached to the people I love or the people I care about, use it more as a reflection. So there you are having a really nice relationship with your honey, your sweetheart. and. Uh, 
And then you remember, oh yeah, I'm interested in these practices, I've been cultivating mindfulness in my life, why not now? So there you are, however, whether you're having a dinner together or just hanging out or whatever it might be, then you just practice what the Buddha is suggesting we should be doing all day long. So you just practice, okay, what's the mind knowing? You know, so maybe there's a really nice feeling, like a, just a really sweet feeling of being with this person, like a grateful, great, gratefulness, you know. Then you say, oh, gratefulness is being known, you know. And then if you get some stability, some continuity, just being present with that nice feeling of being with your sweetheart, then you might reflect, now, is this nice feeling personal or is it just a natural process? That happens when this, you know, body and mind is with something it really likes, like this other person, then this nice feeling of gratitude and appreciation will arise. The other times that might swing over into attachment and fear of loss, you know, I hope he or she doesn't go away, you know, I hope this lasts forever. And then if you continue to practice, then there will be a moment of knowing, oh, attachment's like this. Attachment's being known. It's like this. And then the reflection, is this self, this attachment self, or is the attachment also a natural process that is arising due to certain causes and conditions? When the mind is looking at things from this personal point of view, and it has something it's like, it's not, a, it's not going to want it to change. It's going to want it to always be good like this. And so there will be that attachment, that fear that it might change. And it will be like this. This is a natural process. It's not self. So it's not about whether we should or shouldn't be attached. It's about being reflective and, and looking. <clears throat> is, however, whatever it is that the mind is knowing, is it a natural process or is it self? Is it personal? We're not trying to have like the ultimate philosophical answer to the universe. We're just trying to see how it actually is. And the thing is, we have this life always, in every moment. And so right now, the question is, is this natural? Is this nature, what we're experiencing, a natural process of causes and conditions unfolding? Or is it me having an experience at Tomogram? And we just look. And we're not like going to grasp an answer. We're just reflecting. It's like an open question. We're not looking for an answer. We're using the question to draw the mind in more fully to the experience, be more intimate with our experience, whether we're with our sweetheart or at a talk or cooking ourselves dinner or whatever, or meditating on the in-breath or out-breath. Yeah, thanks for the good question. What else comes to mind? Comments or questions? Yeah, Tom. I go into this 
I'm going to have this kind of experience, you know. And when those things didn't happen, it, it got to be, you know, there was there was degree where that that major for that experience, and then there was you know aversion to the, uh, whatever when those things weren't where the things of those types of experiences weren't arising. So it's bound up with all sorts of different things. One, one, uh, one experience is yeah, yeah. And when you know, finally got to, in some sense, um, maybe listening to what the moral the truth was about, then I was able to see that, that, that you know, from the beginning to start to see what wrong view is all about. And a lot of times, I know that. I can say that from my experience, the shorter retreats, you know, more recently have gotten to be as intense, if not more intense, than the longer retreats. Thanks for sharing that, Tom. And I think we just need to, I mean, one comment on Tom's comments and sharing around longer retreats and his comment about uh, you know, spending a lot of time in wrong view. We just have to understand that we are, whether we do a lot of formal long retreats or not, we're going to spend a lot of time in wrong view. It just has a lot of momentum. And being impatient about the mind's tendency toward being in wrong view, that's wrong view too. You know, like thinking, i got to get out of wrong view. The key is to get interested in this reflective mode of being. So we're interested, when there is wrong view, we're interested in it as something being known. And to see that wrong view is itself a natural process that is being known now. That's how we transform wrong view. Not by, oh, being afraid of getting into wrong view, really wanting right view. And this is a very frustrating part of the spiritual practice, the spiritual path is that as we have authentic insight, we really get a sense of the freedom that's available. So I'm not talking about people who don't have some spiritual intuition, but people who have real spiritual intuition, there's no way to avoid this. I was, like I said, I was just on a retreat with Saida Utejaniya, a wonderful, well-known Burmese uh, Buddhist monk, meditation teacher, and um, she said some very poignant things about greed. I think I think one of his comments was, you know, everybody has to go through the school of hard knocks, which is greed. He said greed will stop the practice that over and over again. It just does. We and and the thing is, as the practice actually works, we start to feel moments of real freedom. You know, when there is that continuity of mindfulness and some semblance of right view where the mind is understanding that what is being known is just a natural process, so the mind is relatively free of clinging, attachment, then there's a lot of lightness and freedom that arises. But the tendency of the mind to congeal from a self point of view will arise and, in a sense, own that nice feeling, that freedom. Oh, it feels so nice. This practice works. I am so grateful. I'm going to go on a long retreat. 
I hope it works out. We're and all of a sudden we're a suffering human being again. In the thick of it. And it doesn't matter that we're planning our retreat or worried about the retreat. It, we could be worried about making a lot of money or worried about dealing somebody's honey from somebody else. The tension in the heart will be the same. The suffering will be the same. Whether we're fretting about mindfulness practice or fretting about money or power. It doesn't really matter what we're obsessing about. The tension or the contraction in the mind will be the same. And anybody who's been on long retreats <laughs> know that we can create tremendous states of suffering. In fact, you do it more quickly on retreat because the mind's more sensitive and there's fewer things that distract you from your patterns of suffering. You know, now in daily life when we're suffering, you know, we can we get distracted here. We're building up a head of steam and we're getting angry and angry and then, you know, phone call. And we gotta put down our obsessive thoughts about anger and deal with the phone call. But on retreat there's nothing interrupted. So if you get in a negative pattern, you can just go for hours and really develop a head of steam, whether it's about lust or greed or aversion or some deluded fantasy. Called, there's even a term for it, it's called yogi mind, you know, just these states of delusion, greed and aversion that people can get in when they're in these rarefied states of being on retreat where there's not much happening. And the mind has a lot of energy because of the simplicity of the schedule and the, the meditation practices. The mind gets really bright and that brightness can be used to develop insight or it can be used to develop you know, diluted states of mind. <laughs> but if there's some momentum in the practice, a moment of mindfulness will arise and the mind will know that suffering is like this. Being in this contracted state is like this. And then if we're not frightened by the pain we've just awoken to, we can have another moment of mindfulness. Yeah, it's really like this. And then another, and then right view can arise. Oh, Instead of taking the pain of the contraction because we've been so contracted in the, in the aversive or greedy state of mind, it's not going to go away immediately. So we need to be compassionate and patient and forgiving and wisely understanding that of course the mind from time to time gets lost with greed, gets lost with aversion, of course. So even though we do get in these deep holes, whether we're on retreat or not, it's okay, we can use the deep holes we get into to develop wisdom, to develop right view. Thanks for sharing, Tom. I often want to say to experienced practitioners like Tom, who's done a lot of long retreat and short retreat practice and practicing at home for a long time too, you know, that just to really encourage people, because sometimes, like I said at the very beginning of the talk, there's this mentality, you know, about like doing bigger, you know, I've already done a lot of half-day retreats. I've got to do day-long retreats. Oh, I've done a lot of non-residential retreats. I need to do residential retreats. Oh, I've done a weekend retreats. I need to do nine-day retreats or three-month retreats. Or, and, it, you know, it, it's just like this idea, well, I don't really need to do a day-long retreat or a half-day retreat or a weekend retreat or sit every day. I need to go and do a three-month retreat. And a lot of times it's just, that's like the height of delusion, this idea that a half-day retreat wouldn't be good for us. There isn't anybody alive, I don't care how experienced they are, that 
sort of a little bit of practice wouldn't be good. Like just this moment, just practicing this moment. It's so easy to practice postponement. This is like one of the most perfect expressions of delusion, postponement. Like being mindful in this moment doesn't matter. I need to really practice. You know, and so we don't take the moment we actually have to practice because we're in this idea of like, oh, I'll practice there. I noticed this several, you know, I'm between retreats. I did a two-week retreat. I'm about to do a three-week retreat. I've noticed many moments in the last 48 hours since leaving the retreat before going to my next retreat where it's like, you know, oh, I can play now. Yeah, I don't have to practice now. And it's like how the mind makes mindfulness like the bad guy. It's like bitter medicine. It's actually a practice of happiness. Like why wouldn't the mind want to recognize, oh, life is like this. Now, what is the fear in the mind? What is, it, what is its problem with mindfulness? Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, Anya. If you're really doing it as you're going about today, you don't need to go on retreat. Yeah. But th in the same way that you're already naturally uh, organizing your life with wisdom, like you, you're not sitting here with your earbuds in listening to music in the middle of the Dharma talk because you have enough wisdom to know that, you know, if I'm going to get it myself all the way to Kamagran, I might as well listen to what's being said. So already you're making choices about your environment, how you are, what you're doing, what you're not doing. So that's what I would recommend for people about retreat, is just do the best you can to practice in this moment. And as you're doing that, you might find yourself in moments signing up for retreat or not signing up for retreat. And then if you do sign up for retreats, you might find yourself actually going on that retreat. But practice all the way along. And even if all you know all about to go on the retreat and then you have to cancel, then you practice then too. And I can't go on the retreat. It doesn't mean you're not going to practice. It just means you're not going to practice on retreat. So to really see like the choice of whether to go on retreat or not, or to get married or not to get married, or to have kids or not to have kids, or to have a TV at home or not to have a TV at home, or to be a vegetarian or not to be a vegetarian. I mean, all these things that we associate with, like, oh, I've got to do it right, because I am a, I'm a spiritual person, I've got to decide, like, should I be a vegetarian or not? Or is it okay to have a TV or not? Or, you know, should I live in the country? Or sort of, can you be a spiritual person in the city? Or, you know, there, it's all a ways of being, practicing postponement. Let's just practice now. Let's practice on our way to being the perfect spiritual person. <laughs> Instead of like postponing, like I'll, I'll practice when I'm in that perfect spiritual situation. Yeah, Jenny, and then Gail. Why can't that be part of the natural process? Like, you're not for or against deciding. What you're saying is, what, what we're saying is I'm making a commitment to this reflective process we call wisdom mindfulness. 
bringing right view and this recollecting this is being known. These two things. And right view may initially be just that information we get from the Buddha and then eventually our own experiential wisdom, you know, from our kind of called from our lives. But we this is what we're coming into allegiance with. And then whether how we make our choices, we just like we'll let the natural process of the mind and body make the choices it makes. Or it won't be, you're assuming that there's a somebody who needs a right answer and wants to avoid the wrong answer. Why can't we let nature decide whether you do this or you do that? <laughs> but wouldn't the practice reveal how, how uh, that doesn't work and leads to suffering? And it's based on a self-view. It's really about trust. Thank you. fundamentally good for you and for all beings and 
the thing is, we might, in our busy daily lives, we may have that intuition, but are we acting on it? And that's the key. And the other thing is, you know, the whole structure of the retreat is to is set up to remind us to do the practice. Now, daily life, there are not a lot of built-in reminders. But on, on a good retreat, there are a lot of built-in reminders. Every time you see another retreatant, you're reminded because that retreatant is doing the best they can in that moment to be present. And so it's like you're around a bunch of people who are reminding you about this possibility of being present. So it's very powerful. Many people, uh, their first retreats or one of their early retreats are brought to tears, not because it's hard, although that happens sometimes. It is hard to leave behind our sort of schedules and friends and that are moved to tears by some deep internal recognition of how valuable this work is and how grateful they are that they have found this work, this practice, and they found a community to practice with. I mean, this is not an uncommon thing. So I agree with Gail, you know, just really putting the plug in to experiment. And you can, some people just like to dive in and just do a residential retreat. And generally, it's absolutely okay. Don't feel like you got to build up. But if you're shy or if you're a tentative type by personality, then just start with a half-day retreat and then do a day-long retreat. And then do maybe one of these practice intensives. We're doing a June practice intensive. So twice a year, for two or three weeks, we uh, practice at home, coming to the center more often during the week. There's uh, information on the bulletin board. You can find out about the June intensive, which begins on June 3rd. Um, I think it's a Monday the 3rd, I think it is. Yeah. I think we have to end here. Sorry, Julian, we're a couple minutes over. So let's just take a few seconds and let's go to the words. Take a breath or two. Appreciating that it's like this now. And appreciating the natural process of the body and mind as it's revealing itself right now. However neurotic it might seem, or beautiful, it's just the natural unfolding of causes and conditions of this body and mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.